The first scripture reading today is from Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. The second reading is from Philippians chapter 3. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I want to know Christ and experience him, the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. We're in week two now of a new sermon series we started last week called Presence and Power. And the idea of the series is to focus on this theme of what does it mean, what does it look like, what do we have to do to experience God, to actually feel him, to have him be as real to you as another person in your life. So we're we're talking about something beyond uh, beliefs, beyond doctrines, beyond moral standards of how you should act, beyond anything to do with the faith as it's commonly thought of, you know, in terms of uh, I'm a Christian because I believe X, Y, and Z, but rather this experience, this real tangible experience that's subjective, not just objective, not just I think it's out there, but I know it because I've experienced it myself. So last week we talked about the the benefits of this, by the way, the, the technical, correct theological term for this phenomenon is being filled with God's spirit. That's the way that the New Testament talks about it. That's the phrase that's used. It talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit to a greater extent than you are now. That's that's what we're talking about in this series. And last week we said, here's six benefits of if this happened to you. So I'm not going to review all of them, but the, the basic gist of it is your life would be a lot better than it is right now if you were more filled with God's Spirit. So we talked about, you know, you filled with joy and peace instead of anxiety and despair, and your relationships are deeper instead of more surfacy, and you have guidance for your decisions, and I reviewed half of it, but anyway, the, the other three you can go back and, and listen to. This morning, you, you're thinking, okay, so last week uh, I talked about how I'm going to leave you hanging, just give an advertisement, an infomercial, here's why it's so great, and this morning you're thinking, okay, now we're ready for the, the how-to. You know, Last week was why I should want this, you got me hooked, now this morning is the how-to. 
but we're, we're actually not quite ready for that yet. And the reason we're not ready for that yet is a simple one. It's because you don't want it bad enough yet. You say, I do want it. I, I was here last week. I, I, it all sounds great. You know, I don't, don't tell me what I want. I, I do want it. I am ready. But I guarantee you that you don't want it bad enough. You're not hungry enough for it. You're not thirsty enough for it. Your appetite for this is not voracious enough. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. It's what we have to talk about before we can proceed. The, the, the title of this morning's sermon is Hunger and Thirst. And we're going to talk about this problem of not being hungry and thirsty enough for more of God's Spirit in your life. Two sections to this morning's sermon. Uh, first, the necessity of this hunger and thirst. And then second, why you're not hungry and thirsty enough. First, the necessity of this hunger and thirst. And then secondly, why you are not hungry and thirsty enough. Those will be our, our two sections, and then we'll wrap up. So first, the necessity of this hunger and thirst. Why is this a necessary thing? That's the claim, that to experience more of God's presence and power in your life, you have to really want it with this intense desire. How do we know that? There's a couple of different ways we could probably demonstrate the truth of that principle, but the easiest way is just to look at, uh, look back through history, look at scripture, and look at all of the men and women who have ever experienced God's spirit in a full and robust way. And, and this is, this intense desire, this ambition for it, is basically the one thing they have in common. They all have in common. So just to take two examples, let's look at uh, King David and the Apostle Paul. Two guys that are very different in almost every respect, centuries apart, different vocations, different temperaments, different personalities, different educational backgrounds. The only thing they had in common is that they were two of the most spirit-filled people who had ever lived. Got to be at least in, in the top ten. And, and we look at them and we see, despite all these differences, that this common trait is that they're driven by this, a thirst for it. They have this, this intense desire and appetite and hunger and thirst for more of God's presence. So let's look at first at, at David. Uh, you, you already heard these two passages read just a second ago, but let's look at them again now when you know who's, who's speaking. This is from Psalm 63, and you can follow along on your, your program if you like. Jason just read this. David says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. He's talking about desire and longing and satisfaction, being satisfied in God the way you're satisfied with the richest of foods. He says, I can't find water anywhere. I'm in this dry and thirsty land where there is no water. I thirst for you, God. Thirst, desire, longing. Same exact thing from the Apostle Paul. So this is the second scripture reading, and this is also on the back of your program. I want to read this again as well. Paul says, I thought these things were valuable. He's talking about the things he used to pursue, the things he used to get his satisfaction from. I thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. It's intense desire and ambition and longing. And, you know, we we look at these guys like David or Paul and think, man, I'd love to experience the fullness of God's presence and power like those guys did, but but they're just so different from me. And that's, that's true. That's true that they're very different from you, but that's not a very helpful observation. The question is, how are they different from you? What is the differentiating trait that makes them able to experience God's presence and power more than you're able to? And it could be, you know, is it, is it just this innate ability to connect with spiritual things? Is God gene something they're, they're born with, this, this extra spiritual sensitivity this extra spiritual IQ, so to speak, or is it rather the case that the thing that separates them from us is this hunger, this desire? It's not just one of their differentiating traits. It's the trait above all others that makes them who they are and makes them able to experience God the way they are, the way they do. It's kind of like if you look at like a, a concert violinist, you know, in some top orchestra. What enabled that violinist to to attain the top of their profession? How did they get to where they are? Is it innate ability, some aptitude? That's part of it. Of course, they had to have some musical aptitude, but it's not just that because there are all sorts of other violinists who were equally talented, had equal musical ability, and aren't at that same spot. And I know you think I'm going to say it's practice, it's discipline. That's what made the difference is they put in the time and they practice. But, but that is still short of the real answer because the question is what made them able to put in all those practice hours and practice the way that they did? You know, uh, everybody knows about the 10,000 hours thing from Malcolm Gladwell. He's the one that, that popularized this idea that you have to put in 10,000 hours at anything to actually become a master of it. Uh, but the, the concept is actually widely misunderstood because in the popularization a critical detail was lost. The, the original study was actually a study of violinists. That's why I brought up violinists. And in the original study, it's not just 10,000 hours in general of practice. It's 10,000 hours of a very specific kind of practice. This practice where you can't just be running through scales and doing stuff you already know. 10,000 hours of practicing stuff you can't do already. No time spent on the stuff you already know how to do. So in other words, it's 10,000 hours of pushing yourself, of making sure you're outside your comfort zone always, every second. 10,000 hours of punishing yourself, essentially. Uh, my favorite movie of 2014 just got nominated for Best Picture was Whiplash, and it's this, this extremely compelling portrait of the intensity of desire that's required. It's about this, this guy, this kid, who's at a school that's supposed to be Juilliard here in New York City. He wants to be one of the, the great jazz drummers of all time. 
and the way that he has to sacrifice everything else in his life to pursue this goal. The way that he doesn't just have to practice, he has to practice with sweat coming out of every single pore of his body, with his hands bleeding. This extremely intense desire is what pushes him to that level. And that's the way it is with God. You know, you you could go to David or Paul and say, man, I, I want to experience God the way you do. And they'd say, well, I'm sure you do, but how bad do you want it? That's the question. How bad do you want it? There's this uh, old story that's been retold many times. You've probably heard one version of it or another about this younger monk who goes to visit this older, wiser monk up you know, on, on some mountain. He makes this journey, this pilgrimage to ask him, you know, how do I get closer to God? And so he gets there and he says, you know, teach me. You know, what, do, what, what do I need to do to get closer to God, to experience more of God in my life. And so the older monk says, okay, come with me, follow me. And he takes him to this pond. And he says, now kneel down next to the pond and look into the water. So he kneels down and he looks into the water. And the older monk uh, takes his head and shoves it under the water and holds it there for like two minutes while the guy is flailing and thinks he's going to die. And then he yanks him up after two minutes and he says, when you want God the way you want air right now, come back and see me and walks away. And you say, Okay, nice story. You know, nice <laughs> examples. Why does it have to be so hardcore, you know, so intense? I mean, why, why is it like this? I mean, you know, I, I can tell that you're really excited about it and everything, but what is the point of it being this hard? And the point is, among other things, God's not going to cheapen himself. You know, he's not going to give himself to people that don't really want him. He wants you to want him. He wants to be wanted, but he's going to make sure that you really do. He's not going to be this puppy dog, you know, waiting for you to play with him. And, okay, God, I'll take you out for a walk, but then I've got to get back to work. He, he wants you to really want him. And he's not going to give himself to you just to have you get bored and then cast him aside. That's painful to him, just the way it would be painful to you. And you see this with Jesus all the time in the Gospels. He's always blowing people off. You know, people will come up to him and say, Jesus, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he'll basically say, no, you don't. You know, I don't have time for you, and, and walk away. He wants you to want him, but he wants you to really want him, and he's not going to give himself to you more fully. We're talking now not about grace, not about salvation, not about being welcomed into God's family. That's something different. That's another topic. We're talking about experience the fullness of what God has to offer. He's not going to give you that unless you have this intensity of desire, this hunger, and this thirst. That's the first section of the sermon, the necessity of this hunger and this thirst. So now moving on to the the second section of the sermon, why you're not hungry and thirsty enough. That's what we'll spend the rest of our time talking about, because you're not. And, you know, we, we all know that. You're sitting there thinking, well, okay, I guess if that's how it is, I guess if you have to be that hungry and thirsty to experience the fullness of God's spirit, then I guess it's just not going to happen for me because I don't have that. You know, I kind of want it. Like we talked about uh, last week, those things all sound attractive. I, I might even say that I'm convinced that my life would be better with more of God's spirit in it. But being convinced of something is very different from craving it the way that you're talking about. So I guess, you know, it's just not going to happen for me. And, you know, that's one way of looking at it. Well, what can we do? We can't change our desires. If you're not hungry and thirsty enough, you're not hungry and thirsty enough. Nothing we can do about it. But the other way of looking at it would be to ask, well, why aren't you hungry and thirsty enough? And how could you become more hungry and more thirsty? And the way I'd like to get at that is 
to step back and first recognize or, or acknowledge that there are other things in your life besides more of God's spirit, other things in your life that you would like to have or to attain or to be, but you don't have for the same reason because you don't want them bad enough. So for example, a lot of people would like to, to read more. And by that, I mean read real books, you know, serious books, literature, but they don't, they never get around to it. Or a lot of people would like to learn an instrument or get better an instrument that they used to play, but they never get around to it. Or a lot of people would like to have a more muscular physique. They'd like to work out more, but they never get around to it. And in, in each of these, these cases, there may, may be myriad reasons why you don't do it. You know, I don't have enough time or whatever. But the, the meta reason, the reason behind the reason is always that you don't want it bad enough. And somebody else did. The people that, that do it or get it wanted it more. So why do some people want things more than other people? Why are some people's desires stronger and other people's desires weaker in any given area? And the thesis I want to advance this morning, this is basically the the main point of the sermon, is that the reason our desire, our hunger and thirst for God, or for anything, is not stronger, the reason it's not strong enough is because we find some substitute that takes the edge off of our hunger. We find some substitute that's easier to get, and it's not as good, but because we partake of this other thing, it takes the edge off our hunger, and then even though we still kind of want it, we don't want it as bad as we used to. Our appetite has been dulled, and we don't want it bad enough to, to put in the work. So to understand how this works, just imagine you're on the way home from work on the train, and you start thinking about this dinner that you'd like to prepare. You know, something healthy and fresh and satisfying sounds really good, and you're picturing it in your mind, and you think, I'm going to go to the store and get all this stuff and make this for dinner. So you get off the train, and you start heading to the grocery store, but getting really hungry. And, and so you pass by McDonald's, and you just go in and say, I'm just going to uh, get something to, to hold me over, you know, just a snack, just cheeseburger and fries and a Coke, and uh, then I'll go to the store and buy all the stuff that I was going to buy for dinner, fully intending to still make the dinner. And so then you get to the grocery store, and by that time, the cheeseburger and fries has started to hit your stomach and you start to realize this is actually going to be a lot of work to make this meal you know I have to buy all this stuff and it's kind of expensive and you have to prepare everything and I get home and cook it all and and you still kind of want it but you just don't want it as bad as you did before and so you know you leave you change your mind you leave and get another cheeseburger on the way home just for for good measure and it, that's how it is with these things that we that we want but we don't want bad enough we take the edge off our desire by partaking in, in something else. You can think of this as the, the lowest shelf phenomenon. You know, the thing you want is on a higher shelf, but there's something else that's not as good, but it's easier to get on a lower shelf, and so you go for that instead. So instead of reading this great classic novel that you have sitting on your shelf, you know, it's kind of hard to get into. You start it, and it's a little old, and so instead you read these these kind of silly articles on your phone because that's easier. Instead of taking guitar lessons or practicing the guitar, you do crossword puzzles. Or take what's probably the best example. Most men, if, if given the choice in the abstract between having sex with their wife and watching TV, most men would choose having sex with their wife. So why does the TV so often win out? It's because to turn on the TV, all you have to do is pick up the remote control. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We'll be here all week. I think I'm blushing. Been practicing that one. (laughs) 
the point is, you go for what's on the lowest shelf. You go for what's easier, even though it doesn't satisfy, even though it's not what you really want. And nowhere is this more true than in our relationship with God. Because he's on the highest shelf. You know, he's the most satisfying, but he's also the, the hardest to, to get to, the hardest to tap into. And so we go for something else, something lesser. And then when we do, we think, well, we can have both. We'll just have this little snack first, and then we'll go for God. But then it's too much work at that point. Your appetite's dull. You're not hungry and thirsty enough anymore. And so you never actually get around to it. Uh, to make this even more clear, I want to give you two real-life examples of friends of mine for whom this has happened. And the, the thing is, and the thing you'll see from the story, the thing we haven't set up to this point, the really tragic thing is when you start partaking of these snacks instead of God, what happens is your, your tastes change such that that's the thing you really want. That's the thing you crave. And you lose your taste for God altogether. So the, the first story, first example, a friend of mine who, for him, uh, the thing that he really loved to do, the thing that he looked forward to more than anything else was hunting. Now, this one will not relate to anybody in terms of the actual hobby. I doubt we have very many hunters here, but just kind of uh, put in your hobby of choice. You know, it's the, the point still remains the same. So for him, it was hunting. All week long, he would look forward to getting out, in the woods at the end of, on the weekend and hunting. This was kind of what drove him. This was what he thought about at work. And he called himself a Christian, but the idea of giving up one of his two hunting days to go to church was anathema to him. You know, so this took first place over his relationship with God. And not only that, but it kind of ruined his other relationships too, because if he would go out hunting and he wouldn't get anything, he would come back and be in a bad mood for his wife and his kids and you know, I mean, just it would be sort of like you're going to have to stretch your imagination to, to kind of get your mind around this. But if somebody was so into a football team that they, were, they got in a bad mood if the team lost. You know, I know that never happens, but just imagine if it did. It's sort of like that. And so hunting was kind of what he lived for in that sense. And at one point in his life, he has this epiphany and realizes that this thing that he thinks is making his life worth living is actually, in a lot of ways, ruining his life. And so he decides to go cold turkey. He gives up hunting altogether and puts up his gun, doesn't hunt for years, and in that time rediscovers this depth of a relationship with God that he didn't know was possible. Why? Because hunting had been filling that hole in him. He, everybody's hungry and thirsty naturally. You're born with the spiritual hunger and thirst, but you can find other things to put in that hole. And so hunting for him had been filling him up. He was okay. And once that was taken away, he felt the emptiness. He felt the hunger and thirst, and he had the drive then to pursue God, and he found him. And you say, okay, so I get the point. Christians are just supposed to give up all their hobbies, not do anything fun, and be religious instead. You know, what you'd expect to hear from a preacher. But, but that's not it, because it's, it's not about, you know, whether you engage or don't engage in whatever frivolous hobby. What it's about is your hunger and where you're finding your satisfaction. And for this person, and both of these stories actually have the same point, after a number of years, he was able to re-engage in hunting again, and it was a totally different thing. Now, when he went out hunting, he, didn't, he, he wasn't in a bad mood if he didn't get anything. And because he had developed this hunger and thirst for God 
this taste for God. When he was out in the woods, guess what he was doing? He was praying, because that's what he thirsted and hungered for. Second story, same exact point, just different details and somewhat more relatable. Of another friend who said, uh, says now, looking back, that what he lived for was making money. This was absolutely what drove him in his life. It wasn't just his job. It wasn't just something he felt like he had to do. It was his passion. It was his love affair. It was his hobby all rolled into one. And he said that the thing that he had the greatest appetite for more than anything else was market data. You know, he could not get enough financial numbers. He couldn't read enough about the various markets. He said his favorite activity every day, the thing he looked forward to more than anything else was reading the Wall Street Journal. And he had a spiritual crisis, similar to the first friend, where he, he realized, you know, I, I said I was a Christian, but God has no part in my life anymore. And so he starts reading market data less, starts reading scripture more, starts praying more, and slowly he regains a taste for the things of God, and at the same time starts to lose a taste for this stuff about the markets. You know, he said all of a sudden it just started to seem really silly to me, you know, really insipid. What is this all about? And he said the Wall Street Journal would just start to pile up in the corner at his house. And the same thing here, it's not about detach yourself from the world and go be a monk, because after about 18 months, he felt like, okay, I can safely start reading the paper again. And he did. But now, as, whereas before, he would feel so sucked into it and just could not get enough. Now, he'll, he'll read for a little bit. But then, because he's developed a taste for God, he feels this hunger for God again. He wants to put it aside and go spend time in Scripture, spend time praying, spend time being filled with God's Spirit. And that's what it's about. It's not about this list of no's and these things you don't do and Christians don't do that or Christians don't do the other. It's about what role they're playing in your life. It's not even about, you know, I think an oversimplification of this message and a misinterpretation of it would be, okay, so moderation in all things. Just don't be too into any of your little hobbies, your career, just, just moderation. But it's not about that either. It's not about how much you do it. It's about the way in which you do it. And whether they're ruining your appetite or not, whether there's this snack that you're having that makes you not want dinner anymore, not want to feast on God anymore because you're no longer as hungry or thirsty as you would have been otherwise. But as you start to make the shift, this beautiful thing happens where you, you can acquire a taste for God. And, and like all the finest things and the highest pleasure, it is an acquired taste. You know, the best things in life, you have to actually work to acquire the taste to be able to enjoy them. I, I personally uh, am not an aficionado of classical music, I'd like to be someday. And I've, I've heard a friend talk about how before I listened to Mozart, because somebody told me I was supposed to, you know, I had to do it to get a good grade in my college class. But now, over time, now I listen to Mozart because it's beautiful and it's good and it moves me. And I have had that happen in certain areas of my life. You know, I asked for this uh, biography of George Whitfield, this preacher from the 1700s, for Christmas. And Brittany saw me open it. She's like, you are the most boring person I know. Um, but it's like, I started out reading those kind of books because I thought they'd be edifying, you know, because I thought that's the kind of book that a, a good Christian was supposed to read, even though I really wanted to read the sports page or whatever else. Now I crave it. Now because I've read enough of it, I can't wait to find out what happens next. I want more of it. And that's how it is with God and more of God's spirit. It is an acquired taste. These other things are easier to get a little hit from, a little fix from. 
But once you've tasted this, there's no going back because this is the good stuff. It's like, you know, you used to like this, this cheaper wine, but then you tasted this more expensive wine. And now the, the cheap stuff doesn't do it for you anymore. I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis that sums all this up very nicely. He says, there's a lot of papers up here. Famous quote from uh, his Weight of Glory collection. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let's pray. God, we're embarrassed that we haven't cultivated an appetite for you. We are embarrassed that you're something we think is good for us instead of something that we crave and desire like we crave and desire these other silly things that don't matter. So we know the path. We know that we need to stop ruining our appetites, that we need to let our natural hunger and thirst for you return by letting ourselves be empty for a while. But we know we're going to need help too. We ask that you would help us. We ask that you would come and give us resolve as we we try to set our eyes and our hearts on higher things. We ask that you would give us, uh, even prematurely, give us to get us started, a taste of your goodness, something to whet our appetite, something to keep us going, keep us forsaking these other things that we used to think were valuable so that we can pursue you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.